Well, if you take your Bible and turn it to Philippians chapter 2, and while you're turning there, who all got a new Bible for Christmas? You're breaking it in this morning. Okay, no one. No one got a Bible for Christmas. All right. Well, Philippians chapter 2, if you will. So, uh, Kicker talked about our new reading plan for this next year, for this year, and we just finished up the book of Revelation this past year, and if you read through there, you realize we talked about the worthiness of Christ. You read that. And so today, I just want to remind us of something that we read this past year in Revelation, and I want to talk about and start our year off with talking about the worthiness of Christ. I just go ahead and confess, I will already butcher this because to talk of such a worthy subject is just beyond anything. So I hope that just the scripture itself will speak for itself as we read through it and just discuss a few things about the worthiness of Christ and what you and I are to do with that as a follower of his. And so if you will, in Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 3, and it just talks about that you and I are to have this particular mind that was in Christ Jesus. In fact, verses 3 and 4, I would say, are probably the best marriage verses you could ever have. So if you're married, memorize these. If you're not, go ahead and memorize these, because these will work anywhere. Because it says, do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is what Christ did. He says, now let this mind be in you. So in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be hung on to. But he emptied himself. And why would he do such a thing? He did it so that he could be fully man on earth and be totally committed to God. In fact, it really talks about he never used any of his privileges for himself. In other words, if you'll remember when he was in the desert being tempted by the devil, that the devil came along and said, take these stones because you're hungry and turn them into bread, and he would not do it. So he wouldn't use his privileges for himself, but multitude of times he would do what? He would feed the multitudes. And so whenever the passage says that he emptied himself, it was not to be grasped. It means he would never take personal advantage of his power. And so he would use it for others. On in verse 7 it says, But taking the form of a servant, or some of y'all's translations will say slave or bondservant, but it literally means a slave. In other words, when Jesus came, he owned nothing. He was born in a barn. Um, he had no home. He was homeless. And when he was buried, he had to be buried in what? A borrowed tomb. He was an absolute slave. He had nothing to himself. In fact, if you will, and you can see this, would you read this with me? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us again about his poorness and why he did that. So read this with me, will you? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, stop for a moment, rich. When you think of Jesus, I don't know if you think of him as rich, but I want you to think before he came, he owned everything. In fact, he owns everything right now, but he owned everything. When you talk about he left his riches, 
He owned everything. Go on with me. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And it else goes on. Being born in the likeness of a man and being found in human form. Probably many of you know this verse, but if not, I just want you to kind of see, because a lot of people think like, well, what did Jesus look like? Did he look like uh, some movie star? Was he like, he really stood out? Well, listen to this if you've never seen it. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing special about his appearance. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I, I, as I was studying this, I thought, well, he looked a lot like me then. Because there's like nothing that you would look at and go like, man, that's the Savior there. The thing is, there was nothing about him that would draw your attention to him. And it goes on to say there in the rest of Philippians, it says, he humbled himself. You know what it means to humble yourself, right? It literally means to stoop. To humble means to stoop down. And when you think of Jesus stooping down, he stooped down further than anybody ever, right? Because he stepped out of the highest position ever to go to the lowest position possible on account of you and I. He humbled himself. And why would he do such a thing? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Is anyone in here, do you have a choice of whether you will die or not? Anyone? We want to meet you. There's no one in this room or on earth that has a choice if they will die or not. But Jesus became obedient. What's that mean? He could choose to die. Only God, only God could accept death as an obedience. And so what does it say? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, it literally means he stooped further and lower than even possible that you and I could imagine because to die on a cross would be considered by the Jews cursed by God. It was the ultimate way to die. It says then in verse 9, therefore God, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. And so here you and I just celebrate Christmas. We celebrate what? His incarnation. In other words, him coming, becoming man, and all these things we just read. Now I want you, if you will, flip to the last book, Revelation chapter 1. Because what I want us to do is to look at now what would he look like. And so Revelation, if you will, chapter 1, and we'll ver look at verse 9. Start there. Revelation chapter 1. Start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, it is thought that because John would not worship the emperor 
And all it was was a small act towards him, but he would not, and so he was exiled. You know, you realize all the other apostles, they died cruel deaths, and you're like, well, why John? Well, if you kind of think back about John, this would probably be worse than even martyrdom because he is isolated for the rest of his life on an island. No, not to see anyone, not to be able to talk to anyone. It was probably for him more cruel than anything. And there he is, but it's on account because Jesus wants him to be there. Because on account of the word of God and testimony, I was on this island. In verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12 then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, in other words, the churches, and then look at verse 13, and don't quickly just run by it, but it says, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of God. So where is he? He's right in the midst of the church. He is right in the midst of you and I. I don't know if you and I realize this or not. But you and I gathered as the church today that the presence of God is here, whether you feel it or whatever, however you come, you know, you think about that. But you and I are in the presence of God. The presence of God is with us. But here's for me personally, something that I need to work on. I realize this probably more than anything. It's not that God is not present, but it's am I present in his presence. Does that make sense? It's a guarantee that God is present with you and I. It's a guarantee that God is present with you and I right now. It's not a guarantee that I'm present in his presence. And that's why I would say, uh, for me more probably than anyone, Sunday is hard work. Because it's hard work for you and I to come in, to settle down, to help our minds be engaged here and not elsewhere, but to be present in God's presence. So, so it's a wonderful thing for me personally. It's a guarantee he's in the midst of the lamp stands. And here's the thing, John, it's been 60 years since he's seen Jesus. And here he sees him again, but here's how he sees him. Go on, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. Only prophets, priests, and kings wore robes. This particular robe really suited him because he finds all three officers are found in him to the ultimate. In fact, for, before we go on, I just want to call your attention. I have it up here, Hebrews 7.25. As a priest, a priest would what? Go and represent you before God. I, you probably realize this, but again, it's a great reminder of the new year. Look at it and read it with me. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. How many, how many of you in this room, when you got saved, needed to be saved to the uttermost? Yeah, every one of you should have your hands up because uh, no one can go like, I just needed a little bit of saving. No, all of you were crummy, all right? And so the thing is, he can save to the uttermost. Continue reading with me, will you? Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is making intercession before God for you and I. 
Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. In other words, this kind of represents his eternal holiness. There has never been, nor will there ever be, any corruption, darkness, defilement, sin, stain in Christ. In fact, it's like 1 John 1, 5. There's absolutely no darkness in him at all. In fact, the rest of the verse goes on and says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. If you will, I want you to keep your finger there in Revelation and take a hard left and go to Psalm 139. We'll come back to Revelation in a moment, but I want you to see it in your own Bible. Flip way left, go to Psalm 139. We're going to look at the first six verses. You probably know this well. It's a great reminder again. Psalm 139, 1 through 6. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge that God would know so much about every one of us individually. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't even comprehend it. I mean, I don't even know myself that well. And yet God is acquainted with every bit of me. Now, if we will, flip hard right and go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Some of you probably have this memorized. It's a great one to memorize. Hebrews 4, 13. Hebrews 4, 12 says what? That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it goes right into verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him whom must give account. Turn, if you will, back to Revelation 1. We pick back up now in verse 15. Not only were his eyes a flame of fire, in other words, he sees and he absolutely knows everything. In verse 15, it says his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. This one's a little interesting, and I find it uh, really interesting because uh, here's my hobby. So I have a hobby, and it's blacksmithing, and it's working with metals, and I've done this for years. In fact, I come by it honestly, my two uncles were Edmund's first blacksmiths, and I have most of their tools in my shop at home now. And so I like to forge metal and work with it. And I find this pretty interesting because bronze, especially in the time that this was written, was considered the hardest metal ever. And here's why. Because it was almost impossible to get a fire hot enough to be able to forge bronze. In other words, you couldn't just have an average fire that if you took a, just a regular piece of metal and put it in the fire, ultimately it would turn red and you could form it, you could work with it. But bronze is very difficult because it was almost impossible to get it hot enough to be able to work with it. Make sense? 
And so why would his feet be like such? It would be maybe go like this. As the God-man, Jesus walking through the world as he did, he did not succumb to one temptation. Uh, feet like brass. In other words, he never gave any inkling to any temptation while on earth. But as God the righteous judge, his judgments will never be swayed. In other words, like bronze, it is untouched by the heat of seduction or bribery or anything like that. In other words, his judgments will be perfect judgments. Absolutely perfect. No one will ever go, that's unfair. You didn't see the whole thing. The truth is, God's judgments are absolutely, and they are right. And his voice were like a roaring of many waters. In other words, it's perfect authority. Now, you don't have to hold your hand up, but have you ever said a word, and the moment it left your lips, you thought, I probably shouldn't have said that. Have you ever done that? Oh, you don't have to raise your hand. No. Here's the truth. Not one word that God has ever spoken has needed to be recalled. Not one. He has absolutely perfect authority. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Right hand, literally perfect control. And from his mouth came a three or a two-edged sword. And again, you know this one because Hebrews 4.12 says this. Read it with me. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joint and the marrow, and the discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. It knows the motives of every one of us. It goes on to say, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, this is his glory. It is the sum total of his infinite perfections. And you realize glory only belongs to God. There is no other being, there's no other person, there's no other being that has a sum total of what? Infinite perfections, his glory. And so verse 17 says, And when I saw him, when he saw this, he fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things, are and those that will take place after this as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches if you will look in your worship guide just over to the left there's a quote by a guy named J.I. Packer it is from a book I highly recommend called Knowing God and it says this Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, 
So calm the swelling bellows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. In other words, as John saw this incredible vision, not only did it cause fear, it brought incredible comfort. That's for you and I as well. Now, I want you, if you will, in Revelation, turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a lamp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and you shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. What's interesting about this, in the Greek language, it's the largest number they had. And so today, if you would put it in today's English, it would be infinity times infinity of the number of angels that were worshiping. And they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now stop for a moment. Do you know what it means to be worthy? It's an old word. It comes from to balance the scales. And so if I had a set of old scales right here, if you put Jesus in all of his glory on this side of the scale, it would be down here, right? And then if you took all of what was just said, all what? Power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And if you could just imagine all of that, and you put it on this side of the scale, what would the scale do? It would do nothing. Because you could take all of that, and because of the worthiness of Christ, it would not balance out because he weighs way more than that. 
He's way worthier than any of that. In verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders found down and they worshiped. And so that's a whole lot of reading. That's a whole lot of the vision of the greatness of God. And so here's my question to you and I. What, in view of the worthiness of Christ, what should you and I, what should be our response? You've probably heard that worship is a human response to divine revelation, right? You, you may have heard that before. It's like, what is the response that you and I should have that when you and I really look at Christ, as the word tells us, of his worthiness, what should be our response? So if you will, leave Revelation, go left. I want you to find Ephesians, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and here's where we'll stop today. We'll camp out on this two verses for a bit. Ephesians, if you will, chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. So you'll find within this first verse a statement that is used over and over again throughout the New Testament. Especially in the first chapters of most of the New Testament letters. This is the statement you'll hear. Walk worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. Live your life in a worthy manner. In fact, verse 1 says, I therefore a prisoner... For the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so for you and I to walk in a worthy manner, if you had those scales again, uh, those scales don't work the same for you and I. So in other words, you and I, if you and I, in our position in Christ and our practice should balance out. Does that make sense? For you as a child of God, for me as a child of God, and my practice, my daily living as a child of God should balance out. That would be a worthy walk. In other words, I am practicing my position. I am living out that I am a son of God. I am living according to how he would want me to live, living in a worthy manner. And so what would that look like? If you will, I just want to pull apart these four things that we find in this verse. It says, what? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so for a moment, I just want to talk about those four words for just a bit. Humility. It's interesting. If you've ever been to another country, um, there are some words in the English that they don't have. So in Bosnia, and uh, Slajan did not tell me this at the time, but we were preaching in Bosnia, 
and I said the word grace, and he stopped me. Now, I know this has happened to you, Marty, or if you've been elsewhere in the world and you're talking to an interpreter, and your interpreter stops you as you were right in the middle of something, and they just start talking to you, and you feel like kind of weird because everybody's staring at you. And so Slodjan goes, well, in Bosnia, we do not have a word for grace. And so come up with another word. I don't like being put on the spot like that. Like I didn't have a dictionary at the time. Uh, and so we're up there just talking back and forth while all these lovely people are out there waiting patiently for us to come up with the rest of the message. And so the deal is they didn't have a word for that. I remember in Haiti, they didn't have a word for a, another thing. And so the interpreter stops you and goes like, hey, come up with something else. Well, here's what's interesting. In the Roman or Greek language, there's no word for humility. In fact, when they thought of humility, they thought of a weakling. And so the Romans and the Greeks quickly adopted that word for Christian. Well, a Christian's just a weakling. And so they would use that as a slang towards them. And yet, you and I are to have humility. And you know it's a virtue that is to be highly sought. You know that, right? In fact, I want to show you a couple of verses here that it tells us we should seek humility, but never claim it. You and I should seek it, but never claim it, because once you claim it, you have what? You forfeited it. It's kind of like saying, I was humble the other day and very proud of it. Well, that just doesn't go together, right? And so the thing is, it is something to be sought. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands has made. And so all these things they came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. So this ought to catch our attention. God says, I've made everything, but uh, here's something. This is to a person I will look unto. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so to be humble is something that you and I should seek after to be humble. It's developed when you and I look at Christ's worthiness and our wretchedness apart from Christ is one of the ways you and I can develop humility. It is also developed when you and I look at Christ's example. There was no task too low for Christ to stoop and perform. Have you ever said, well, I'm not going to do that because no one else is doing it? You and I could never use that for humility. You and I could never say, I'm not going to humble myself that low because no one else, and yet you'd have to take your words back. Because Christ humbled himself, you can never take on a task lower than what Christ has taken on. You can never, whatever task that might be. And so here's my encouragement to me first and then to you. How can you serve someone without ever being recognized? How could you serve someone and never be recognized? 
In fact, do it in secret. And you know the secret, right? The secret is that God sees in secret. In fact, here's a motto all of us should have. Say it with me. God sees, that's enough. That should be a motto of every one of us in this room. If you're listening online, if you hear this later, as a child of God, this should be a motto of ours, God sees, and that's enough. Uh, It doesn't matter if anyone ever sees it, if anyone ever recognizes it, if anyone ever gives tribute to like, hey, I saw that. The truth is, do it in secret. Is there someone, is there an area, is there a place that you could serve somebody or an organization or your neighborhood? Is there somewhere you could serve no one? They would recognize that it was you. The second one, some of your translations say gentleness. It is literally the word meekness. Meekness and gentleness, there's a little bit difference. Meekness literally means power under control. And there's never been anyone demonstrate meekness more than Jesus. Power under control. Power under control. In other words, here's maybe a way you and I could exercise it. See ways to exercise meekness in your life by setting aside your position, your privilege, your preference, or even your pettiness. And seek to do a task that no one else is running to do. In other words, be specific. In other words, you would say, where in my family, where in my work, maybe in my neighborhood, in my church, where in the world could I serve that no one else is running to to serve? Where would that be? Because that would take meekness to lay aside, well, that's somebody else's job. But to take it upon yourself and realize no one's ever exercised meekness more than Christ has. Where would you do that? In other words, one of my favorite sayings Jesus said, he said, go the extra mile. And over time, I've realized go the extra mile means to do more than is required of you or expected of you. Do more. It's not like do as little as possible to get by. But in your family, in your work, uh, in your church, in wherever, that you would go beyond just what's required or expected. And here's, here's my, like, why would you and I even do that? And the truth is, is Jesus not worthy that you and I would go the extra mile and do more than is required or even expected. The truth is, he's worthy enough that we would go way beyond that. Some of y'all's translation says patience. You know, it probably, uh, most of you know, that it literally means to suffer long. It is long-suffering. It means to have a long fuse, to have long forbearance. And again, no one has ever demonstrated this more than Christ, have they? To bear long. 
In fact, to this day, you and I are still here on earth because why God is forbearing. He is forbearing. I can remember in the last about five years, but it was really the past, the last about three months of my parents' illnesses before they passed, that in the middle of that, it was like uh, time stood still. In fact, I thought this would never come to an end. In fact, some of you here or even listening, you're in one of those situations. You're in the middle of something. You're like, will this ever come to an end? And I'm sorry to say I felt that way in the midst. I I wondered what is going to happen. When my parents passed, there, it was a real revelation to me. It really wasn't that long of a time, but it seemed like time stood still. And some of you all are in the middle of something like that, and you're having to really forbear. You're having to suffer long because it seems like time's standing still, and you're not going anywhere, and nothing is happening, and you're like, what is going on? And I know... People think weird when you say, like, I want to tell you a secret, like I'm a Gnostic. I know something that you don't know. But I want to tell you a secret about long-suffering. You know how you get through with long-suffering? You realize it will come to an end. You know how you and I are long-suffering on this earth? Because we know for a fact what? It is coming to an end. And whatever you and I are going through, you and I can suffer long because we know it is coming to an end. In fact, Pastor Marty had this for a couple weeks up here. I hope that you realize what this verse is saying. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so when you and I are going through something, Paul says what you need to realize is it whatever you and I are going through, it's really light compared to the weight of glory that is ahead. And it's really momentary compared to eternity that is lying ahead. And realizing in long suffering, it will come to an end. And here's the truth about for you and I as a believer coming to an end is not annihilation. Coming to an end is what? A beginning of something absolutely beyond what you and I can even imagine. It's beyond our imagination. Here's the last one. Forbearing love. This is agape love. This is the highest form of love. It is a personal choosing to love that's not influenced by any promise of return or reward. It's the highest love. It's the kind of love God has for you and I. It's his choosing to love us. It's like there's something lovable in you and I, not at all. It's that he chooses to love. That's how you and I are to love. And it was never demonstrated more than by Christ, who has forbearing love. And so here's my last admonishment to you and I. In light of the worthiness of Christ, 
I urge you and I to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With all stooping down and meekness and long-suffering, with forbearing love towards one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Jesus, today, we come and we acknowledge to you. In fact, for some of us, maybe it's been a while since we've even stopped long enough to think about the worthiness that is in you. I know with the holidays and the start of the new year and all so many things, but I pray that you'd help us to stop for a moment, even this morning, and consider you are worthy of every ounce of everything we could ever do or be. You're worthy that we would live our lives that would be worthy to you. You are worthy that we would humble ourselves and we would be meek and we would suffer long and that we would have forbearing love for others. Lord, our lives should be tempered. Our lives should be guided by the truth that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. I pray that you'd help us as so many things in this world come at us to think about and to dwell on and to capture our attention. I pray that nothing would capture our attention more than your worthiness. And may our lives line up with your worthiness. God, give us that ability. Help us as we leave this place in our homes, in our businesses, in our wherever we go to school, whatever we do. I pray that we would walk in a worthy manner that would honor and glorify you, that would seek to bring good to other people for their ultimately their salvation and for their good to relieve brokenness and harm where there is and hunger and the lack of the gospel. I pray that our lives we would walk worthy because you are worthy that we would walk in such a way. I pray these things in your name.